You know, um, I don't always start my time reflecting back on the songs that we sang, but this morning I just want to take a moment to really challenge you and to invite you to think on the goodness of God, the joy that is ours in the house of the Lord, right? Beyond all that I want to like say or communicate or tell you guys this morning, beyond all the, the, the truth of God's word that I want to uphold before you this morning, it, it leads toward that end of us knowing what is ours in Christ Jesus, knowing who we are in the eyes of our creator, and to know what is ours that he invites us into through his son, Jesus Christ. And so I just want to challenge you and encourage you and, and, and prayerfully ask that you would open your hearts and minds this morning, that this would be more than just a time where we're here because this is what we do on Sunday morning, but this is a time where God has personally invited you to sit before him and to hear of the goodness that he desires to invite you into through Jesus Christ. So... I, I, I want to just pray again, because I think it, it, it's, it's a moment where we need to offer back to the Lord and ask him and his spirit to do that work in us. Father, we cannot create for ourselves a space or an idea or a way of thinking that helps us to comprehend who you are and how great you are and your love for us. And so, Lord, uh, it, it, is, it is beyond our ability to comprehend the fullness of who you are, the goodness, the greatness, the righteousness, the majesty, the awe and the beauty of who you are. Lord, we, we, we are given glimpses in your world and your creation, but we know it more fully in your son, Jesus Christ. And yet, Lord, even that, I, I know we will not fully comprehend and know until we stand face to face with you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us a taste Give us more of a knowledge of who you are. Not just a, a head knowledge, Lord, but this, this, the, a knowledge that, that transforms our whole identity, our whole personhood. Lord, I love you. And, and I know many more of your people do as well. So, Lord, we are here to worship you, to know you, to, to celebrate you, to come to know you, trust in you, and follow you. So, Lord, in our time in your word this morning, have your way among us. May, may the songs we sang and the prayers we prayed, may they prepare the soil of our hearts to receive the seed of your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are newer to Christianity, one of the words we will use from time to time to describe the life of a Christian is that of a, a follower. Right, and 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 at the same in the same token, if you're uh, gr if you've grown up around Christianity, if you've been around the church for a while, uh, this is one of those words that maybe we don't put enough emphasis on in following Jesus. I mean, we talk about discipleship, we talk about maturity, we talk about faith, we talk about uh, leadership, directing, shepherding, but how much time and thought do we put into this idea of of following? It's certainly not a word that we see as being a, a, a value or a virtue in our culture, in our wor a world, right? I mean, when was the last time you saw someone who got an award for being a strong follower? Not many people have those, those kind of placards held up on their walls in their offices. And so Mark's gospel this morning will invite us to think about this a little bit more, and, and specifically to think about it through the lenses of the numerous occasions where Jesus invites his, his people, the people he meets along the way, to follow him. 
Now, not to get too technical, but this idea of following implies a relationship, right? There's the follower and the one being followed. And and specifically, what I want us to understand is this is the relationship that Jesus uses to depict what it means to be in the kingdom of God. You may remember from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark that that Mark describes Jesus' ministry starting out in Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, which is summarized in Mark 1, verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled. All of time has been coming toward this moment. The time is fulfilled. It's here. It's now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This kingdom which is at hand stands before these people, proclaiming that the time is now. It's fulfilled. It's here. It's right now. So, what you need to understand, what we need to understand is the, the kingdom is not a place, but it's a relationship. It exists, as J.I. Packer puts it, wherever people enthrone Jesus as Lord of their lives. Where, wherever people accept Jesus as their king. That's a hard thing for our hearts to, to embrace and accept. Right? To, to, I mean, I know we say it, we live by it, especially when we come here to church, that, that Jesus is Lord, that, that he's our king. But in practice, it's very hard to let Jesus be king of our lives. So, so hear me clearly, church. Jesus is, is more than a man who gave up his life for others. He's more than a man who died on a cross. He's more than a wise teacher. He, he's more than a miracle worker. He, he's our king, and he does all those things. He's the sum of the parts. And this king's invitation to us is to follow him. So in our passage this morning, we're going to read of Jesus' invitation to follow. But when we read this invitation, don't read it as as envisioning as we would as a child, follow the leader. Right? Where we, we see the leader and we, we walk in his footsteps and we, just, we, we do the same things that he did just with him being a few steps ahead of us. Open your hearts and minds to think more deeply on what it means to follow Jesus. To accept this invitation to follow him. So go ahead and you can turn to Mark chapter 2. If you want to grab the Bibles from the seat back in front of you, it's on page 837. I'm pretty sure I've said that for the past three or four weeks. We're still on the same page in the Bible that's in the seat back in front of us. But hey, that's great. That's, that's you know, we're, we're taking small chunks at a time right now. Mark chapter 2, we're going to read verses 13 to 17. If you have your own Bible, feel free to open it. Whatever translation you have is fine. I'm going to read for us from the ESV, which is the, the same translation as what's in the seat back of the chair in front of you. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Hear what God's word declares. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Church, our passage this morning opens with Jesus continuing to do what he's been doing all along. Right? He's been going throughout Galilee, preaching and proclaiming the gospel of God. The, the, the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel. Right? He's, been, he's been preaching the good news of the kingdom. And, and along the way, he's been healing and, and, and casting out demons and, and cleansing the lepers. But Mark includes Jesus' interaction with a tax collector for an intentional reason. He does it intentionally so that we might see that Jesus preached with more than just words about the kingdom of God. Jesus embodied the values and the life within the kingdom of God and so preached the gospel not just with words but also with his actions and interactions and the relationships of the people he spent time with. See, like he does with Levi, Jesus calls us to follow him and in following him, to be with him, right? Not just to imitate his actions, but to be in a life with him, to, to walk with him, to, to live with him, to attach our lives to his life and, and to, to kind of share in his purpose and his mission. See, the Levi that Mark introduced us to is likely the same person that the Gospels of Matthew and Luke refer to as, as Matthew later on, but but more important than his name is the profession that he makes his living by in each of these three Gospels. Le Levi is a, a tax collector, or more accurately, he's a, he's a toll collector whose job was, wasn't completely unlike a toll collector of our day. You drive across the GW Bridge. Actually, for, for some of us, this is more poignant because we grew up with uh, even having some of those little booths, those toll collecting booths where you had to throw coins in. You know, you just toss it and hopefully it all sinks in and you can just keep going, right? But, but, but Levi was like one of these toll collectors. If you cross the GW Bridge, you can go through the Easy Pass, or you can go through the booth and pay money. But what he did was he gathered in these tolls. Now, crossing a bridge, these tolls uh, are, are, are kind of set as a standard by the state, and they're used to kind of, in the upkeep of our infrastructure, upkeep of the bridges and the roads and things like that. For, 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 for Levi, as a tax collector in his day, this was not a not-for-profit or for the help our infrastructure sort of business. This was absolutely a for-profit profession. Levi would have had to bid to the Romans to, ha to get this job. He would have said, I I'll, I'll, pay, I'll pay you this much to allow me to be a tax collector, to gather in a fee to each of my neighbors, my Jewish neighbors, as they come and go in their trade in and out of the town that I'll be serving in, right? And so for, for Levi, it, it wasn't just a matter of, of, of gathering in the change as they went by. It was charging a fee, but this fee wasn't just regulated by the Romans. The Romans didn't care what fee he charged as long as they, as long as they get their base minimum. So if, say, it's $10 to cross the bridge, Levi would say, okay, it's $10 to cross the bridge, but it's actually not, by the way, uh, it's $20. So you got to pay the $10 to the Romans and the, the $10 to me, right? Levi was, was, was making money off his Jewish neighbors. And so they hated him. 
They hated Levi. They hated his tax-collecting buddies who were lining their pockets with their hard-earned cash with, with, as they came in from catching their fish and they had to pay a toll for how much fish they caught. He was making money off of them over and above what the Romans were already taking out of their pockets, right? And so they were, they were a dislike. They were, they were hated. They were seen as traitors to their Jewish neighbors, this is the thing. In the Jewish Talmud, which is like the kind of the, the overarching like document of the people, they were the, the tax collectors were put in the same category of bad as murderers and thieves. Right? I mean, in our minds, that doesn't compute. That doesn't seem just. That doesn't seem equal. But in their mind, like, this is the same level of bad. They betrayed their own people. The, the tax collectors were the Benedict Arnolds of Israel. And this right here is where the values of following Jesus into his kingdom clashes with the values of the kingdom of this world. Because even those who were excluded by the world were welcomed by Jesus. And not only were they welcomed by Jesus, we see the character of, of grace in the kingdom of God on full display. If you're keeping track of, of who Jesus has specifically invited to follow him, he's, he's invited a, a group of four fishermen who, who aren't exactly running in the elite crowd of Capernaum, right? And now he's, he's asking Levi, this much-hated traitor to the Jewish people, to join him. I, I don't know if you're familiar with fantasy football or, or, or one of those online fantasy sports, but, but Jesus would not be drafting a team that was expected to win, Right? But that's not even the most shocking part of our passage this morning. Because in, in verse 15, Jesus does something that was downright scandalous. He shares a meal with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. Read verses 15 and 16 with me again. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, Jesus sharing a meal with these people, with the tax collectors and sinners, may not seem overly scandalous to us at first glance, but for the religious leaders, for the people of Israel who had tradition in their, in their, in their favor, this was absolutely a radical thing that Jesus was doing. He wasn't going out and enjoying a nice lunch after church like we might. This wasn't like a holiday or some other celebration of something like graduation or baptism. What made this meal so special was the meaning and the significance of the people who shared the meal. Right? I mean, church, we think in categories, don't we? We don't mean to. It may not even be something we try to do, but we look around us in our world and we think of people in categories. We think of the rich and the poor. We think along lines of race and culture. We even think along lines of gender, male, female. And, and these categories can be helpful in many ways, but they're, they're not without uh, a, 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 a moral emphasis. We don't just attach 
like the function of these categories, we, we, we kind of ascribe a moral value or, or, or meaning to it. And so for Jesus to recline at the table in the way that they did with these tax collectors and sinners was scandalous. Why? Because reclining at a table in the way that Jesus does and the way that his disciples and these tax collectors and sinners do symbolized something in those days. It symbolized friendship and acceptance. It symbolized communicating without words that we're welcoming you into our, our category of, of, of influence, my social and religious and relational world of influence. We are equals. We share that world together. I'm for you, you're for me, right? In addition to this, the Pharisees saw tables, the tables that people gathered at around homes, as representative of the Lord's altar in the temple. And so they felt, the tradition felt, that they needed to guard and protect what happens around this table. Not only are you only supposed to keep company with people who are pure, but even the things that you eat and the utensils you use are meant to be kept pure because, again, it represents what happens at the Lord's altar. It's meant to represent the holiness and righteousness of our relationship with God. But the people that Jesus was spending time with were nowhere near a pure people in the eyes of the Pharisees and the the scribes of the Pharisees. Not not only had they not washed their hands or were concerned about what food was at the table and how it got there, these were people who were morally impure. They'd been betraying the people of God, acting unjustly. The, the tax collectors and sinners were, were a, a category, category of people all their own. Despised, hated, thought of as scum. And, and, and what's so scandalous about the, the, this situation is not so much that this hated group of social outcasts such as tax collectors and sinners are having, uh, have, have accepted Jesus' invitation to, to share a meal together, What's scandalous is that Jesus accepted them, right? Notice this. The scandal is not that they said, okay, Jesus, we'll have a meal with you. Right? For them, it's like they'll, they'll spend time with anyone. What's the scandal is that Jesus accepted them and spending time with them, sharing fellowship with them around the table at Levi's house. And so you can almost hear the, the, the anger and the indignation uh, from the scribes of the Pharisees when they're talking about Jesus. Really? What? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This, this man who, who preaches the gospel, who, who teaches, who heals, this man that all the crowds are going to, what is he doing? You can almost hear it in their voice. The scribes were, were the experts in the law, and clearly they took issue with Jesus' lack of respect for their holiness tradition, for, for their, their ritual purity laws. But, but here's the thing. While they're so concerned with washing the external things like the cups and the vessels and the, the utensils and their hands, Jesus was concerned about cleansing and purifying the interior life, the heart's 
and souls of the people who needed it. And so Jesus is something like a disruptor in that he's willing to accept and share fellowship with people that the Pharisees considered untouchable, impure. And this challenges the status quo of what was acceptable religious behavior. I think this disruption is best understood after hearing what Jesus has to say to them in verse 17 in response to their questioning. Look at verse 17 one more time. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus is speaking something uh, in, in something of a proverbial way to explain that to his audience that the, that the purpose of his ministry isn't to keep up the religious status quo. It's not to say, hey, we've always done it right, so let's keep doing what we've done in the past. It's actually to challenge that religious tradition and say, no, I'm, I'm not here to keep up this religious status quo. I'm actually here to save sinners. I'm here to seek and to save the lost. And so like a doctor whose sole purpose is to heal the sick, Jesus' purpose is to seek out the spiritually sick, those who are far from God, the lost sheep, those who have wandered away from God, who are, who are far from him, and, and, and to heal up what is keeping them from being in a good and right and healthy relationship with God. I mean, think about this for a moment. What, what would you do if you called your doctor because you weren't feeling good, you were feeling sick, and your doctor says, well, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to wait until you get well before, before I can see you. That's crazy, right? I mean, that's insane. You'd think, it, you'd think it's insane, right? This is the same kind of crazy behind the scribe's question when they ask how it is that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. It should be obvious to them, but it's not. Right? Jesus came to call not the righteous, but the sinners. And to do this, he has to be with the very ones who are in need of a physician. I mean, yes, Jesus came to save uh, for the least of these. Yes, he came to seek and to save the lost of God. But don't for a minute believe that there's a category of people that Jesus didn't come to save. Right? We, we cannot think or allow our minds and our hearts to believe that there are people beyond God's love and compassion and desire to seek and to save. He came even for the Benedict Arnolds. So these are the ones that Jesus invites into a relationship with him, to be with him and to follow him and to live like him and, and trust in him to cleanse them and make them well. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but there's, there's actually an irony in Jesus' words. I came not to, what did he say? I came not to heal the, the, the righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. There's an irony here. Because there aren't actually two categories of people, and only one of which Jesus came for. Right? There's not the righteous and the sinners. There is no righteous category of people that Jesus will walk past on his way to get to the sinners. Do you get that? 
right? They're, they're, Paul will say this later on in Scripture, which we, we affirm and, and, and we, we cheer on. There is none who are righteous, not one. There is no righteous category apart from Jesus Christ. He's not walking by a group of people saying, you're all set, so I'm going to go over here to these people. There's really only one category of two types of sinners, the religious sinners and the regular sinners. I didn't have another name for sinners. Super sinners? I don't know. No, that doesn't work. The ones who live their lives, whose lives have willingly and knowingly betrayed God, right? They know it. They get it. They feel far from God. They know they're far from God. They, they carry the guilt and shame of their lives. They know that there's brokenness there. They're, they're lost. They're confused. They're scared. They're sad. They're lonely. They know that there's a relationship that they should be in, but, it, but somehow it's broken. They have no way of knowing. The sinners, right? But then there's also the religious sinners, those whose self-righteous religious ways have falsely replaced God, right? It's, no, it's not God who saves them. It, it, it's, it's their own ability to build up a life of holiness and righteousness and look how good and right I can be in obedience to God. And so they falsely replaced God with their own attempts to make themselves well. And here's the thing. Like I said, God doesn't walk past, or Jesus doesn't walk past one category of people on his way to sinners. In actuality, Jesus came to save not just the tax collectors and the sinners, but also the self-righteous sinners. And it's only the sinners who recognize their need for Jesus' invitation to join him at the table, to accept, to, to, to enjoy and embrace his acceptance at the table, who receive the blessing of being in the kingdom of God. See, when, when Jesus invites us to come and follow him, he invites us to let him do that work of healing our spiritual sickness. When, when Jesus says, come and follow me, it, it's not an invitation for us to follow the leader and, and obey like we think he's telling us to obey. It's to accept his invitation to join him at the table. And when we join him at the table, we not only receive his acceptance, but his forgiveness as we repent of that old life, as we say no to this old life and say yes to the life we have with Jesus at the table. So we don't have to get well before we can see the physician. The physician invites you to come and join him at the table in your sickness and in your brokenness. See, I think we struggle with that idea. I, I think we wrestle with this idea that, that the physician doesn't need us to get well first, but invites us to join him at the table. And in the midst of our sickness and brokenness, he heals us. He restores us. He showers us with forgiveness and love and mercy. So as we wrap up our time in the passage this morning, I just want to take a few minutes with you. And I want to apply 
Jesus' ministry purpose to our own lives. I want to make sure we walk out of here not thinking of someone else in our life who needs to hear about this truth of Jesus. But I want us to walk out of here thinking about how Jesus has invited me to join him at the table. Because just as there's one category of two types of sinners in our passage, this room is made up of one category of two types of sinners. The self-righteous and those who live as if they have no need for God, right? In the church world, it's become acceptable and even praiseworthy for us to confess when we fall and, and, and when, we, when, when our lives align with tax collectors and sinners, we, we, we celebrate God when there's humility and, and confession and, and when we can acknowledge our weaknesses and, and lament our limitations, right? We think, yeah, God, good job. You're working in that person's life. We celebrate that. But I would challenge us all here this morning to consider that many of us who have been around the church for a while are more likely to fall into the category of the self-righteous sinner. By the way, if, just as a side note, if as we're talking about this, someone else's face pops up in your head, someone else in the congregation whose face pops up in your head or their name pops into your head, guess what? It's really you, right? This message is not for them, it's for you. Mine, numerous times I've had to tell myself that this week, by the way. So you're, you're in good company. See, our, our good deeds, our, our self-built holiness, our religious behaviors, our, our attempts at obedience tempt, to, tempt us to think that we, we, we deserve God's forgiveness. We deserve his love as if he might owe it to us rather than he freely gives it to us whether we deserve it or not. Do you understand that? It's tempting in the church to obey, thinking that, if, man, if, if I, more I obey, the more God's going to love me for it. Man, look how obedient I am. We, we may not actually say it like that, but, but that's how it works. In, in all honesty, I think we relate more to the older son in Jesus' parable in Luke 15. You know the, the, the story of the prodigal son? I, I won't give you the whole story, but, but it's the parable where, that Jesus tells where there's this younger son who, who demands in a very cruel and humiliating way that his father give him his inheritance, right? The dad's going to be humiliated in doing this, but the father gives him his, the, his younger son's portion of his inheritance, and the younger son goes away and loses it all. He spends it all in this wild living, right? And the younger son eventually comes to his senses, comes back repenting, apologizing, wanting to be with his father again. And what does his father do? He stops the son before he can even apologize and, and, and throws him a big party, throws him a banquet. We're, we're tracking with this. We're thinking, man, how awesome it is that God lavishly pours out his love on, uh, on us when we, when we squander what he's given us and, and the ways we've wasted what he, his blessing in our life. But right about this point in the story, we meet the older son, who's furious. He's coming in from the field. He's doing the father's work. He's taking care of the father's land. He's coming in, he hears this big party going on, and he's furious. What's going on? What could happen? So the father comes out from the party and says, come on, come on in. Come, come enjoy the, the celebration with me. My son who has lost his home, he's found, right? But, but, but here's the thing. 
in the older son's mind, he, he, he deserved a celebration. He was the one who deserved this celebration. He was the one that deserved the fattened calf. He was the one that deserved the, the ring on his finger and the robe over his shoulders. He'd been doing the father's work for all these years. He'd been obedient, submissive, working with the father, taking care of the land. He was owed these things. The father owed him. But here's where the parable ends. The parable ends with the father's words to the older boy. Son, son, child, you have always been with me. And all I have is yours. In other words, church, you don't have to earn any of this. It's not about your obedience. It's not about your holiness and your righteousness and, and, and on all these things. It's always been yours. You, you don't have to try and work to get something from God. He's freely giving it to you. And I think in, in our, our self-righteous or our religious mindset, we fall into the trap of thinking, man, God needs my obedience. God invites your obedience but not as a prerequisite for his love and forgiveness and grace and mercy. I think there are a number of us who are, who are caught up in doing the religious life and showing God our obedience and our holiness and our desire and our need for him. But here's the thing. In the midst of our religious busyness, we miss the invitation to join him at the table. We're just not hearing it. We, we actually, or maybe we are hearing it, but we refuse to accept it because we think, no, 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 I, I've got to just finish doing this for you first, God. Then I'll join you at the table. Then I'll accept that it's enough. Now, if this might be you this morning, then, then there's really only one thing for you to do. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is not, show me your holiness, show me your righteousness, and then I'll embrace you and love you. The gospel is that God, while we were yet sinners, sent his son to die for us. That God invites us, the sick and the broken, to join him at the table, to turn away from that life and join him at the table with him where he can do that work in us. Not just where he saves us, Right? We believe in, in, in salvation or justification by faith, that we were made right just by believing that Jesus makes us right. But also, church, we should know that we're sanctified, sanctified by faith. We're made holy. We're made righteous by faith, not by our actions, not by our obedience, not by our showing God how faithful we are. And so for you this morning, there's really only one thing to do. And do it time and time again, day after day. Repent and believe the gospel. So I think we've been so busy doing things for God to show him our faith and show him our love that we've neglected sitting with him and just receiving his forgiveness, receiving that assurance that we are loved. Okay, God, yeah, I get it. I'm forgiven and I'm loved. Okay, now, now I'm, I've got to go read this for you or, or, or go do this for you. No, 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 Dan, stop. Sit, be still. Are you sure you really know that you are loved and forgiven regardless of what you do? 
Yeah, 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 God, I do, I do. Let me, let me just, I'm going to read this devotional. I'm going to pray with you for 15 minutes, and, 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 and I'm going to show you, like, you matter more to me than spending 15 minutes doing this. No, 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 Dan, stop. Slow down. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that you are not only justified by faith, but you are sanctified, you are made whole, you are made complete by faith as well? And so how might we deal with this self-righteousness? How might we repent of it and join Jesus at the table? Well, I'm going to encourage you to consider the prayer of the tax collector in one of Jesus' parables in Luke 18. Let me read it for us. He told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Here's what I do, Lord. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But then the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Make that your prayer without excuse, without caveat, without stipulations or, 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 or special reasons or anything like that, without trying to justify, your God, uh, justify yourself to God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You don't have to tell him why you're worthy of his love and his mercy. You don't have to say, well, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I make. God. Be merciful to me, a sinner, and then know that he has. Know that he has. Don't believe the lie that there's more you have to do to receive his mercy. Just believe that he will do what he has promised to do. Be merciful to sinners. Join him at the table where he reclines with you. And, and here's the thing. At his table is, is what our hearts desire most. We've got to believe that. We have to believe that, that there's nothing we can find out there in the world that will bring us more joy and satisfaction than what we find in the house of the Lord at his table. Right? At his table, you will find unconditional love and acceptance. You'll find mercy and healing, forgiving and wholeness. And these things are not on the table because of something you did. They're not there because you worked hard to, to turn the soil and water the seeds and, and, and then bring in the harvest. They're, they're there simply because of who he is. There's a benefit from putting down your tools of self-righteousness and coming in from the field and celebrating with Jesus. God gave us this promise in Isaiah. It's, it's, it's this 
It's this picture that he's painting of this messianic banquet, this banquet at the end of time when, when, when Jesus brings the conclusion to all things and, and when he finally puts an end to sin and death. Listen to what God's promise is in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Church, God has set a banquet table for us. And there is nothing you need to do to earn your seat at that table, merely accept his invitation to follow him to the table. And at this table, death will be swallowed up forever. Tears will be no more. Joy will be ours. So when Jesus invites us to to follow him, he invites us into this life with him where we receive this acceptance and this forgiveness that he is showering over people at the table. Not for anything we've said or done, but purely for what he has accomplished on our behalf. And and as we we follow him, he's going to lead us to that table where we can recline with him and enjoy fellowship like Isaiah describes for all eternity. Now, I've been spending time talking about the self-righteous sinners, but I know that there are a number of us who carry this the weight of guilt and shame on our hearts. And we long to believe that God could truly forgive us of our sin. But that invitation is for you as well. Nothing I can say or do right now will make you feel any better. The only thing for you is to repent and believe in the gospel. Join Jesus at the table. Let him work in those places in your heart where you need that healing and brokenness healed up. So church, will you follow Jesus? And before we move beyond this question, is it possible this morning that you're saying yes to him? You're saying yes to following him, but in the recesses of your heart, you're standing beside the scribes of the Pharisees saying How can Jesus eat with them? Well, if that's you this morning, then confess with the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then here's the thing. Get into the party. Get in there. Get into the house. Stop complaining and being angry and frustrated and standing outside the house by yourself. Get into the party with the Father. Get into the table with Jesus. Get in there and let him serve you with his love and mercy and acceptance and forgiveness. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to to be with him, to join him at the table, and to, to learn and to know for yourself that there truly is joy in the house of the Lord. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we, we do, we believe, <laughs> help our unbelief that all we have to do is accept Jesus' invitation to join him at the table. We believe, help our unbelief that there is, it's not a matter of, uh, of how long I pray or how many, bi- how many chapters of the Bible I've read today or, or, or how many things I go to at church or what number of places I'm serving and telling people about Jesus. None of those things matter when it comes to Jesus' acceptance and forgiveness. Certainly they matter when we're doing them out of the abundance of our love for you, Jesus. But you don't love us because of our obedience toward you. Help us to to believe that. And and not just believe it in idea, but Lord, help this to be a truth that takes root at the very core of who we are and shapes our whole identity. That we are loved and accepted and made whole because Jesus, our physician, invites us to draw near in our sickness and to be healed. Father, be merciful on us, both the religious and the sinners. May we know that we are the people of God, not because of something we do, but because of who Jesus is. For it's in his name we pray, amen.